you will this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3. There is nothing more exciting for a local church than on a Sunday morning to gather together and to see those that you have been praying for to see one that you maybe have led to the Lord or seeing someone that you know or maybe even not know who comes and is being baptized on that day and joining the church. And as we do, as, as we participate in the ordinance of baptism, we know that this individual has confessed their sin. They have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and they are now Seeking to live for Him, it is a public uh, declaration of that they're going to be obedient, seeking to live for Him, and also join the church and be a part of us, other believing believers, other believers who have been baptized, baptized believers, not believers, believers, anyway, get that right, baptized believers. But has there ever been anyone who has come forward into the church, who walked the aisle, who stood before the church and said, I am a sinner. I need to repent of my sins and I need to be baptized. I've placed my trust in the Lord. And the church just looked and said, well, not him. Obviously not him. He is a good person. He or she, I've never seen her do anything wrong. I don't think there could ever be one, is there? And yet we come today... Jesus Christ, sinless, perfect Lamb of God, who comes to John the Baptist this morning in our text to be baptized. You see, over the last three chapters, we have looked at John's preaching. I'm sorry, over the last three Sundays, we looked at John's preaching over the issue of repentance and calling sinners to Luke has, for the last three chapters, has basically laid the groundwork of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that he is, that he is the Son of God, but he is the Son of Man. He is, he is divine, but he has this human nature. And we've, we've seen many different things since the beginning of Luke. We've seen prophecy fulfilled, angels bringing good news, barren couple having a baby, the, the, the miracle of the virgin birth, five songs of praise concerning Jesus, the 12-year-old boy Jesus in the temple, and then, as I said, the last three weeks, the fiery preacher John the Baptist. But in our text this morning, John is, or Luke is going to pull back the curtain, and he's going to introduce us to the adult Jesus, Jesus who is 30 years of age. Today's text will mark the, the beginning of his ministry. And from this point forward, Luke is going to sh- give us details into the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But it all begins here with his baptism, which is interesting. Why does Jesus come to be baptized when Jesus himself is not a sinner? Dear friends, I believe what Luke is giving to you and I this morning in not just today, but even next week, the credentials of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. Luke is giving us what I will call the credentials of Jesus Christ. A credential is defined as warranting confidence. It is something that testifies that a person can be entrusted with something. That a person 
is to receive credit for something, or he has even the right to rule with power and authority. Luke wants his readers to know that Jesus is the man for the job. And so what two credentials does he give us? And the answer is he gives us his baptism and he gives us his genealogy. These are two tangible pieces of evidence this morning that we will see that gives proof that Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of Man, making Jesus uniquely qualified to save us from God's wrath and eternal judgment. I'm going to say that again. What we have here this morning is proof that He is the Son of God, the Son of Man, making Him alone uniquely qualified to save us from God's wrath and eternal judgment. And so this morning, I want to just take the baptism, and the next week we'll look at the genealogy. I want to look at the baptism this morning that testifies to His divine nature. He is the Son of God, and we're going to look at what this implies. And so I'm going to show you three things this morning. I want you to see from these two verses, the righteous Son's baptism, the Holy Spirit's anointing, and the divine Father's testimony. You're going to see the Trinity all all at work here this morning. The righteous Son's baptism, the Holy Spirit's anointing, and then we'll close with the divine Father's testimony. Look with me here again in Luke chapter two, beginning chapter three, beginning in verse twenty-one. It says, "Now then, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven: "You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased." May God bless the reading of his word this morning and the preaching. Notice first the righteous son's baptism. One of the first things that that, that you may take notice is that this is only two verses long. You say, well, maybe that's not such a big deal. Well, it it is when you consider who is writing this to me. One of the things that I really just kind of just try to set me back is when I begin to think of of what we've talked about over the last three years. Uh, four months of Luke, the historian who is seeking to give us these great details of the life, death, uh, the life, ministry, and death and resurrection of Jesus. He only gives us two verses when it comes to his baptism. And when you compare this to Matthew, which we're going to look at in just a moment, and then you look at Mark, you see that this is really kind of simple and straight to the point. Luke actually gives us the baptism of Jesus really in only one verse. Really, even a half of a verse. One again would think that a historian would have given us more details. So we ask the question, why does Luke only give us this? Why doesn't he give us more? And the answer to that question is, is in his purpose or in his emphasis. Is that Luke is a historian who is seeking to get a point across. Even Matthew, Mark, John, they they all have a purpose in their gospel. Luke places a less of an emphasis on the actual baptism... And as you'll see in just a moment, he places a greater emphasis on what transpires after the baptism. His focus is more on the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of God the Father. But I do believe this morning that we need to answer a question. I, I, I do think it's important that we, that we look at the baptism and we ask, why was Jesus baptized? And so if you will, I want you to turn with me to the left, to Matthew chapter 3. 
Because Matthew actually gives us a little more detail here, and, and Matthew actually is going to help us to understand and answer the question. So take your Bibles and turn with me over to the left to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And we're going to look at this in just, just a moment. Because we know, as I said earlier, that the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. It's, a little, it's even different than our baptism. His baptism was a public profession that you were a sinner and that you needed to turn from your sins and that you were now you know being now that you went through physical you know water baptism you're now coming up and and you're going to seek to to not sin you're going to seek to obey the law but yet we know that jesus is not a sinner and because he is not a sinner he has no need to repent and therefore jesus has no need to be baptized so we ask why does the sinless perfect lamb of god need to be baptized. Well, look with me here in Matthew chapter 3, looking at verse 13. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for it is in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted it. And then we see that after his baptism, everything that Luke gives us. Now notice verse 14. John ponders the same question that we ponder. He asks Jesus. As a matter of fact, John even goes even further. He says, Jesus, he says, you don't need to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you because I am the sinner. I'm unfit to untie your sandals. I I am lowly. You are worthy of all honor and worship. You need to baptize me. Jesus does not deny his sinlessness. He does not deny his superiority. Jesus instead, though, reasons with John and gives him, another, gives him a, an understanding of why this is. Notice that he says that, it, that he must permit this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, FPC, understand that the law included no requirement for anyone to be baptized. This would have been only for the Gentiles and not the Jews. So Jesus is not referring to the law when he says there's no requirement there by the Levitical law for him to be baptized. So what does he mean in this? When Jesus says, John, in order for us to to complete, to fulfill all righteousness, you need to baptize me. John had been preaching on repentance. But not just repentance. Do you remember what he said? John had been preaching on the fruits of repentance. Not just that you confess that you are a sinner, but that from this point, you are now going to begin to bear the fruit of of repentance, which is what? Righteousness, which is obedience to God. John had been preaching that we were a people, that righteous people, confessed their sins, were baptized, and then would live a life of obedience unto the Lord. Well, Jesus is not, he's sinless, he doesn't need to be baptized, but listen to John MacArthur on this. He says, according to John chapter 1, verse 33, God commanded John the Baptist to baptize. And so therefore he wanted people to be baptized, and it was incumbent on the righteous to do so. And whatever God required the righteous to do, Jesus did even the things that he personally did not need to do. We see this in several different areas throughout the Scriptures. That Jesus would, would, would obey and do things that he himself really didn't have to do. For example, one of those was pay taxes. 
Jesus tells us that a king does not have to pay taxes. Well, he is the king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He owns the earth, but yet we know that Christ would pay taxes. We know that Jesus is sinless and that he himself did not need to take take the Passover lamb. We also saw this a couple chapters back when Jesus himself was circumcised. But we see over and over and over again where Jesus comes and there are things that he doesn't need to do. But he does it in order that he may obey what God has, obey the requirement that God has put on mankind. That God has put on his people. So in other words, when Jesus comes to be baptized, he is obeying the will of God. It is not that he has sinned. This is his active obedience. That the requirement that God has placed upon humanity to be righteous that the requirement that God has placed on us in obedience, Jesus himself will take it and he will walk with us in solidarity. He's doing what God is requiring righteous people to do. And since he himself has taken on humanity, he will obey what the Lord is asking. Dear friends, Jesus never committed a sin of commission. He never willingly broke God's law. He never willingly did anything that God said not to do. But Jesus also never committed a sin of omission. You see, Jesus never unwillingly or through apathy or whatever just said, I don't need to do that. He himself was very active in obeying all the requirements that God had placed upon his people. And as we had seen, John was preaching and calling people to repent and to be baptized in preparation for Jesus. And so Jesus does this out of obedience to the Lord, not because he is sinful or committed a sin. Beloved, the baptism of Christ is part of his active obedience. And you need to understand that this is an extremely important doctrine in our faith. Because if Christ was not actively obeying God's requirements... He could not purchase our salvation. Jesus could not purchase our salvation if he did not identify with humanity and keep all the requirements that God had placed upon us. And at this time, God was calling them to be baptized. His baptism was part of his complete obedience to the Father, the righteous requirements on our behalf. FBC, I need you to take notice of something this morning. I need you to take notice that here in his baptism, we learn a very valuable lesson. That your salvation, that your righteousness is not dependent upon you, but upon Christ. You see, too many times the hope of many within within the church is, is that our salvation, the confidence of our salvation... The credential of our salvation is is that you were baptized. You got dumped. And so we see this with many people, people who don't even come to church. We see this with people who are actively, willingly disobeying the law of God, living a sinful lifestyle. And if you were to talk to them, if you were to try to confront them, what would they tell you? They would tell you, well, I am a member of First Baptist Church of Jonesboro, and I remember the day that I came down and the pastor, you know, brought me before the church and, and they voted on me and they baptized me and said that I would never lose my salvation. I, I am saved. So, so the water baptism is my credential. It is my righteousness. Dear friends, the hope of your salvation is not in a 
water baptism. It's not in the fact in your church attendance. It is not in the fact that you, <clears throat> that you are able to keep the law. Dear friends, the hope of your salvation is found in the righteousness of Christ who imputes his righteousness to you. It is he, the one who baptizes with fire, you are not saved because or your confidence of your salvation should not come from your good works and your deeds and the, your, your, your attendance in church and all of the things that you, that you think. Our confidence and our trust comes in the fact that Jesus himself fulfilled, notice the wording there, all righteousness. Dear friends, if you, can you imagine how hard and difficult that is? There are, there are those of you today that you struggle greatly with feeling that you are not enough. Amen? Do you ever just wake up and go, God, why do you even want me? Do you ever just walk in the house and look at your spouse and go, I'm not enough? This happened very recently in my house with me. I'm not enough. I can't even make it. I can't even organize my day, right? I can't organize my day. Not even spiritual things. Just organize a regular day and accomplish all the tasks that I need to accomplish just for myself and for the church and for my family. Just forget the spiritual requirements that are placed upon me. I'm simply not enough. Dear friends, you ever thought that if you struggle with even the hard things, such as, such as worshiping God and not idols, worshiping on the Lord's day faithfully, you say, well, at least I'd have it murdered, but then we got the Sermon on the Mount that tells us that if you have anger towards your brother, then that is considered murder in the eyes of God. So therefore, we've broken that command. And you say, well, I've not committed adultery, but the Bible tells us that if I've, if I've lusted after someone, then therefore I've committed adultery. So we begin to go through the Ten Commandments, the biggies, right? Those are the big requirements. And we begin to realize, I can't even uphold those. How in the world could I ever uphold all of the righteous requirements of God? For did Christ not say in the Sermon on the Mount that you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect? Dear friends, what we find here in the baptism of Jesus is the righteousness of Christ. What we find, this is our hope. That Jesus who said, I don't even need to be baptized. But because God has put a requirement of complete obedience upon humanity, I, who have taken on flesh, will obey God in all things so that my righteousness may be imputed to you and to you and to me. Dear friends, does this not cause you to rejoice? Because you're not enough. But Christ is and so therefore, dear friends, you and I are to trust in the active obedience of Christ. We are trust in the gospel. And Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, let this be the mark of the true gospel preaching where Christ is everything and the creature is nothing. This is what we find in the baptism of Jesus. We find him actively pursuing my and yours righteousness through him. 
Dear friend, you cannot be righteous before a holy God. But you can recognize your sinfulness and you can come to Christ in repentance of your sins and faith and His righteousness be imputed to you. We find our righteousness in the righteousness of the Son of God. But secondly, I need you to see the Spirit's atoning, atoning here. Look, look again in verse 20, 21. We'll turn back over to Luke chapter 3. He says, And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. We see the Son, now we see the Spirit's anointment. Now the first thing that we see in this is that Jesus is praying. This is really interesting because the other two gospel writers who, who give us the, the baptism here, they, they do not tell us about Jesus' prayer life here, about Jesus' praying at this moment. But Luke is very much just obsessed with it. And it's really amazing because when you begin to go through the Gospel of Luke, when all the big moments, the transfiguration, the calling of the disciples, all the big, some of these big miracles and things, you're going to begin to see that, that Jesus is praying to the Father. And what Luke is wanting to do is he's wanting to express the unbroken communion between him and his Father, between him and God. So in his humanity, Jesus submits himself by taking on flesh. He is completely dependent on God. That's what he's showing us here. That Christ, who is 100% God, 100% divine, but he sets this aside. He willingly is not going to, to use that. He's not going to play the Jesus card. So what does he do? Like you and like me, he prays. He asks the Father. But unlike us, Jesus, who is sinless, has perfect communion with God. And so God responds and in this particular moment, the heavens are open. I love Mark's uh, rendering of this. He uses a different Greek word. It's almost like a, the, not, it's not just opening up like a door. It is almost like the ripping of something open. So it's like the clouds are being ripped open. And we see this throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. And what this means is, is that a revelation is coming to us. God is about to speak. God is about to act. And the first act of God here is that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in a bodily form like a dove. This here is the Holy Spirit's anointing on Jesus. Now, now notice two, one thing first before we get to the second. Notice this one. Is that this is not a dove. This is what we want to think. We, we want to think that the Holy Spirit is coming in the form. No, no. He says it is a dove-like descent. And so when we see pictures of the Holy Spirit where it's a, you know, it's a dove, that's not what he's saying. So don't get that wrong. It's a gentle descent upon Christ. What is important here is the second thing that you need to know is that the Spirit anoints Jesus. It is a supernatural empowerment of Christ for His ministry because this is where the ministry of Jesus begins. Now immediately this raises a question. And I need you to not misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus and the Spirit and the Father, the Son, the Father and the Holy Spirit have always been in perfect communion. Jesus has always had the Spirit's presence with him from the very first moment of his incarnation because he is the Son of God without sin. But as I stated earlier, in his humanity, he submitted himself to be completely dependent on God the Father, on the Spirit. So his supernatural ministry, his miracles, his powerful preaching, the signs, the wonders, 
all of these were dependent not on the fact that he was Jesus, but on his communion with the Spirit of God. Just like every miracle performed in the Old Testament and New Testament, Jesus relied on the Spirit just as we do. This is that whole thing of Philippians where he empties himself. He takes on flesh. And so Jesus, who has all power, who's equal with God and Spirit and all these things, he sets all of this aside, taking on the, the human nature. And like us, he now must do, fulfill his ministry, live his life in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We see this in chapter 4. If you were to look over in chapter 4, you see it in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. In verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as he was accustomed, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And so, I'm sorry, verse 14, that he's led there by the Spirit. It says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit where he goes into the synagogue. So we see over and over again where all of these things that he's doing, he's doing through the power and the leading of the Spirit. So the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, this anointing that he takes, it is not that Jesus has not had the Spirit, but it is a public marker, a public display to let us all know that the supernatural ministry of Christ begins now, and it begins through the work of the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, is this not amazing? Is it not amazing first that Jesus himself would empty himself and that he would become like us to the very point that he himself would need to be dependent upon the Spirit of God? That, that is exactly what Christ has done. That is exactly how he identifies with you. That is exactly what he, what he sets aside that, that he may be like us in all things. But dear friends, I would suggest to you this morning that if Jesus was, also, if Jesus was dependent upon the Holy Spirit, then you should as well. How many of you go around completing your tasks throughout the day with no thought of the Spirit in your life? How many of you go through the task of your day with no dependence upon Him? You jump up in the morning and with your, with your, with your own personal motivation and a good night's sleep, hopefully you got a good night's sleep. Some of you going out, no. But just your own willpower and your own just determination. I'm going to get this done. I'm going to get this done. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to serve God and love God. I'm going to, I'm going to do all of these things through my own strength, my own power. I'm just going to get this through sheer determination. And yet what we find with Jesus Christ is that he comes to the Father. He comes to the Holy Spirit in prayer, depending upon them seeking them. Oh, dear friend, I would hope that you and I would learn to depend and seek upon the Spirit in our only day, on our daily lives, just as Christ did. For if we pray for the Holy Spirit to lead us, if we pray that the Spirit would enable us to give us wisdom, to give us strength, to give us power, as Christ, could you not imagine how our days would be so much different? How many of you this morning are relying on the work of the Spirit for your own spiritual life? Some of you are thinking, you thought to yourself, I'm just going to sanctify myself. I'm just going to grow in the Word of God myself. I'm just going to read as much of it as I can and read as many books as I can. And what normally happens? You, you, you give out at some point, right? 
Some of you said, I'm going to begin with Genesis, and I'm going to read the whole Bible, and I'm going to learn everything. But when you got to Leviticus, we had a problem. You're laughing because you know. You got to Leviticus, and all of a sudden, you began to realize, I need the work of the Spirit in my life right now. Because I don't get all this stuff. Dear friend, you cannot grow yourself apart from the work of the Spirit of God. Some of you are trying to lead your families in your own power and your own strength. Some of you, you thought you were going to serve the church in your own strength and power. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be the best church member. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Only that you got tired. You may have gotten angry. You may have become disappointed. And so what do you do? You throw up your hands. I'm done. I'm not serving anymore. Or I'm done. I'm leaving this church. Beloved, as Jesus Christ himself depended upon the work of the Spirit in his life for ministry, how much more do you need it for your own ministry? If Jesus Christ depended upon the Spirit to reach his community, how much more do we need it? If Jesus Christ depended upon the Spirit and to disciple and to lead the twelve, how much more do we need it and to lead our families and to mentor other men and other women? Like Christ, you and I must be in constant communion with God through prayer, through daily Bible reading, through corporate worship and family worship. We must come to the Lord and we must, we must be broken and we must be dependent upon Him, recognizing like we saw this morning in our Sunday school lesson with Jacob. He says, God, I'm unworthy of any of your love and any of your grace. And all I've got is this, I, I came across the river with a stick. He said, but now I come back with two families, two companies. And some of you feel like all you have is a stick. You need the Spirit of God. You need to depend upon it and not yourself. Dear friends, I would encourage you this morning that you, like Christ, would pray and seek the work of the Spirit in your life. But there is another truth that I must say here because it's going to lead us into this third one here. This third point is that we already see two persons of the Trinity here. We're about to see the third one. And before I get into this third one, I want you to know right off the bat that these are not manifestations of God. There is a, a heretical teaching out there that says that called modalism, it says that God is one and he manifests himself in three different ways. Through the Father, through the Son, and through the Spirit. It's three different modes or forms of the same divine person. They would look at the doctrine of the Trinity and say that that is unbiblical. But according to modalism, God switches from these different manifestations. Beloved, the baptism of Jesus destroys that argument. It destroys that argument. Jesus is looking to the Spirit. He's praying to God. So what we find is, is God is one, but he is in three different persons. He is, they are co-equal. They are the same. But it is Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Modalism attacks the very nature of God and His Word. To believe it is to believe in, in a different God. To believe it contradicts the Scriptures. The Scripture is plain. God is one, yet He exists in three persons. Co-eternal, co-equal. And so therefore, we see now two of them. The Son and we see the Spirit. Let me now show you the third one. The Father. Look at the testimony of the Father. He writes, Luke tells us, A voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. In every coronation ceremony, when a, when a son, the, the soon-to-be king, is about to have the crown, someone has to give testimony. Someone has to give witness that this individual, that this person is truly of the divine bloodline or of the, the royal bloodline. What we find here is in the baptism and even at the transfiguration that God himself is going to be the one to give the testimony. The Father will testify that the Son is of the divine line. He declares that Jesus is his Son and the promised Messiah. Now, What's very interesting about this is that God, in all of his wisdom, doesn't just do like you and I. and we just, He doesn't just speak from the heart and just say, yes, this is my son who I love. I love my son. No, he, he does that, but he uses Old Testament scripture and to kind of connect the Old Testament and the New Testament together. So when you see there when he says that, this is my, that you are my beloved son... This is actually from Psalm chapter 2. Listen to this. Psalm chapter 2. We'll just begin in, in verse 6. It says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the, of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. We know that Psalm 2 is a messianic uh, uh, prophecy of the king that was to come to rule over all of Israel. To bring all of the nations under his rule, under his scepter. It was foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah. So God recites that psalm. And he says, that Messiah is my son. But he doesn't just stop there. He then recites Isaiah 42.1. Where he says, I, he, says, where, he says, in you I am well pleased. He says, in, I'm sorry, Isaiah 42, 1, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You see, in Isaiah 42, he begins this theme of the servant. Where does that culminate into? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. So God comes, so, so here God is, the Father, the Son has been baptized. The Spirit has now descended upon the Son. And the Father speaks out audibly, quoting two passages of Scripture and says, This is the promised Messiah who has come to rule and to die for His people. And oh, by the way, He is my Son. He is of the same stuff that I am of. God is testifying that, that, that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. He is the same nature. He is the image of God. He is equal to God in all things, not lesser to God in any way. 
And he will come. He has come to rule and to reign and to redeem through his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. But there's more. He says, and I am pleased with him. Oh, dear friends, we haven't heard those words, have we? You and I haven't heard those words from God, have we? That God is pleased with you. Why? Because you and I are sinful. God is angry. God's judgment is upon us. Yes, He loves us, but God is a just God and He must punish sin. But we see here that God is pleased with us and this is actually pointing to something even greater that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. Listen to this. In Romans chapter 3, we read in Romans 23, 23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see what we have there? Jesus has come to propitiate, to be our propitiation. We talked about this last Sunday night. You actually saw this even this morning if you were in Sunday school. What does Jacob do as he's crossing over the river, but as he's getting ready? He sends gifts to his brother who is angry with him. For 20 years, his brother has probably been stewing in his mind and he's angry and he's going to murder me. He's going to kill me because I sinned against my brother. I deceived my brother. So what does he do? He sends gift after gift over that he may appease his brother, that his brother will no longer be mad. His brother will no longer be angry. Dear friends, this is what we see as propitiation. It means to to avert the wrath of God away from us by offering a gift. It refers to the turning away of God's wrath because of our sin. His judgment, His wrath, His anger is upon us. But here's the problem. You can send as many gifts to God and not one of them is going to satisfy His anger. You can keep all of the requirements that you want. You can do everything that you think that you can do. You can do every gesture. You can do as many good works. You can be as religious as you want to be. But you will never hear those words, I am pleased with you. Because you are sinful. And your sin will always outdo your good. God demands justice. Because of our unrighteousness, there is nothing that we can do But before the ministry ever began, before Jesus begins to preach, before He begins to heal, before He dies on the cross and is raised from the grave, God rips open heaven. And He says, but I am pleased with that one. I am pleased with Him. 1 John 4.10, in His love, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every aspect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. Because of humanity's sinfulness, the Messiah had to come 
Not a human king. Not just a man. The Son of God had to come because a greater sacrifice was needed. A greater nature was needed. Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, listen to this. He says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. And so therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not um, desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. After saying, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. And then he said, Behold, he, who is he? Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Beloved, the only sacrifice, the only gift that can take away God's judgment upon us is in one who has a nature that pleases God. And so we find here that Jesus, yes, he is a man, but he is God. And God has come to sacrifice himself on behalf of men that he may save those whom he has loved. The Son of God has come that He may sacrifice, that He may please God the Father. Because there is no other nature but a divine nature that is powerful enough and strong enough and pure enough to take away your sins. There is not one on earth, but there was one in heaven. So for God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son into the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is nothing less. He is the Son of Man as well as we will see next week. But, but know that in his baptism, dear friend, we see the credential of Christ. The Son of God comes under the requirements of God because you could not keep those requirements. The Son of God comes to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God because you, no matter how hard you try, can never obey and never fully rely. You, you can never follow the Spirit in, in faithfulness. So He comes and He does all of this perfectly. And in His perfection, lays His life down and dies and rises from the grave in power and then unites all who would repent of their sins and believe upon Him that we may have His righteousness that we may have His Spirit. That the Spirit of God is just not outside of us, but it's in us, inside of us. And not only do we gain His righteousness, and not only do we gain the Spirit in us, but we gain the testimony of the Father. I am pleased with you. Enter in, my good and faithful servant. Oh, dear friend, that's how you hear those words. When you finally recognize that the Son of God is your hope and salvation in this world, and you repent of your sins and believe upon Him, 
this is why we do not take away the doctrine of the Trinity. You lose the doctrine of the Trinity, you lose this. And so therefore, you must ask yourself today, dear beloved, has the wrath of God, the judgment of God concerning your sins been satisfied? If you want confident that it has, if you want a credential, you don't look to your water baptism. You don't look to all the good things that you think that you've done and your religious attempts. You look to the Son of God, the righteous Son of God, who through His death and resurrection satisfied the wrath of God You look to Him. You call out to Him this morning. You acknowledge that you have nothing to offer Him. You come poor in spirit, trusting in His righteousness alone and sacrifice. And dear beloved, He will produce in you the fruit of righteousness and repentance. The fruit of obedience. The fruit of love and joy and peace. The baptism of Jesus Christ was a foreshadowing of the great confidence that we have in the Son of God to save us. Let's pray.